Let us pray. Lord God, you are high and holy, exalted over all creation. You alone are worthy to receive all of the glory, all of our praise, all of our adoration, our whole lives, all that we are, heart, body, mind, soul, all of our time, talent, and treasure. We place it in your service for your glory, for your kingdom. God, we want to see your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven, and we want to be a part of that redemptive process of fixing all that's wrong with this world. We long to see your redemption spring forth for the opening of the prisons to those who are captive, to the restoration of sight to the blind, to liberation for the exiles, that they would return with joy and dancing, that the song on, on their lips would be a praise of you only, their deliverer. God, you have been so good to us. You have treated us not according to our sins, but you have sent your only son to die in our place, to, to pay the, the, the debt that we could never have hoped to pay ourselves. And then you have raised him from the dead, conquering death forever, the power of sin. And God, we do confess our need of you that every hour we need you, that every breath we have is a gift from you. We acknowledge that we are only here because of your goodness and your grace in our lives. God, we ask that you would provide the things that only you can give to us that you would direct our church in the way that you would have us to go. Help us to submit to you anew today, to get off the throne of our own lives and to remember that you are on the throne whether we want to acknowledge that or not, God, that you are sovereign. God, we pray for our neighbors. We pray that you would bless this community of Nashville, that you would Use Woodmont to make this a better place. We pray for our neighbors down the road across the street. We pray for Clay Stouffer, the senior minister at Woodmont Christian today as he brings a word from your holy scriptures. We pray that your word would come alive uh, for the people who hear it proclaimed in that church this morning. We pray for Ray Miller, pastor of Crevewood Baptist Church, one of the church plants that Woodmont planted back in the 60s, we pray that you would inspire him to lead the flock in the way that you would have them to go in the Creve Hall area of Nashville. God, we pray for our mission endeavors. We pray for the 160 or so students that are beginning a new semester in Sierra Leone that this church provides scholarships for and funding for their teachers and to administrate their school year academically and to provide food and nourishment and water at the new Jim Curley well there. God, we just pray that you would bless them as they expand their minds, as they learn and grow so that they can be who you created them to be and thrive in this world and not just survive. And Lord, we pray all of these things and we ask them in the name of the one who taught his disciples to pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for once again going on this journey with us over these next uh, 11 weeks as we continue to dive into some of the ancient traditions of the Christian faith. You know, the Christian tradition is so much more rich, it's so much more robust than one particular denomination or another. And my hope and my prayer is that by experiencing some of these other streams of Christianity that we are more connected to the body of Christ around the world, the holy Catholic church, the universal church that exists around the world. But most importantly, my hope is that we are conformed to the image of Jesus Christ who is the head of our church. Credo, I believe in Latin. Last week we started this series, this I believe, and we're, we're going through the Apostles' Creed and we're talking about why it's so important to know what it is that it's at the core of Christianity. Why is it so important for us to know what it is that we believe deep down in our hearts? Well, for starters, our beliefs become our behavior. Our beliefs become our behavior. Have you ever heard that saying before? It's not in the Bible, but I think it's a, a true saying. Watch your thoughts. Watch your beliefs, the things that you think about, because they become your words. Watch your words because they become your actions. Watch your actions because they become your habits. Watch your habits because they become your character, and watch your character because it becomes your destiny. I think that's basically true. And it starts with the things that we believe in our minds. They turn into our actions and our character. And, and our lives are basically headed in the way that we consistently behave. Our consistent actions come ultimately from the things that we believe and that we think to be true. And I mentioned last week that I really do believe that right belief will lead to right practice, that orthodoxy will result in orthopraxy. So I attempted to lay out a defense last week for creeds and why we're doing this series, aside from the fact that yes, it is part of my doctoral dissertation. Many Christians, I'm convinced they lack a sufficient knowledge and understanding of basic Christian doctrine. I wrote in the article for this month's Herald that when I was a, a sophomore in college, I went on a, a mission trip to New York City with Belmont University, University Ministries, and I'll never forget walking, uh, you know, down Fifth Avenue, and, and that we had a, a Presbyterian minister who was with us. He was working for Reform University Fellowship, and, and we'd gotten to be friends, and he, I knew he was brilliant. I really respected him, and so I was asking him some questions about whatever he religion major in college ask about predestination. So I was, I was asking, what is it that Calvin really is teaching about predestination? And, and he was explaining to me kind of his view on it. And I said, well, that's not what Baptists believe. Because I was, I was 20 years old and I knew exactly what Baptists believed, right? And, and he kind of laughed and he said, probably half jokingly, he said, Baptists don't know what they believe. <laughs> and you know, now that I'm older, I see what he was saying. 
Baptists have historically been a non-creedal people. We have refused to lay down our beliefs. No creed but the Bible, we say. But that, I showed you last week, I believe is an unbiblical phrase in itself because there are several statements of faith in the scriptures. And we've had a Baptist faith and message at least since 1925 because we saw the need for a recovery of the fundamentals of Christian doctrine. Because orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. The great evangelical scholar J.I. Packer, who's 92 years old now, he published a little book 10 years ago at the young age of 82. He published a book called Affirming the Apostles' Creed. And in it, he talks about this shallow form of Christianity that some of us first learned as kids in the church and never really progressed into deeper waters. A lot of us learned the ABCs of the Christian faith at Vacation Bible School. Many of you are grinning because you can recite them now, and that's wonderful. I hope my kids know the ABCs of the Christian faith. First, admit that you're a a sinner. Admit that all have fallen short of the glory of God, including you and me. Second, believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. And then C, confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Those last two are taken directly from Romans 10, 9 and 10, our text from last week that we talked about. If you do these things, then you will go to heaven when you die. And that's true. That is true, basically, at its core. But J.I. Packer says that this narrowed down, truncated kind of streamlined understanding of Christianity really is lacking, that it really is going to cause problems in the end. He says this, that kind of Christianity becomes a misrepresentation one that sows the seed of many pastoral problems down the road. Today, on our own turf, he says, we face pagan ignorance about God, every bit as deep as that which the early church faced in the Roman Empire. Wow, this is nothing new, this pagan culture in which we live in. The ABC approach to Christianity is thus not full enough The whole story of the Father's Christ-exalting plan of redeeming love from eternity to eternity must be told. Or the radical reorientation of life for which the gospel calls will not be understood. And the required total shift from man-centeredness to God-centeredness, and more specifically, from self-centeredness to Christ-centeredness will not take place. All that the creed covers needs to be grasped and taught as an integral part of the message of the saving love of God. That's so good. This is an evangelical scholar who's saying we need to teach and understand the Apostles' Creed because it blows up our shallow understanding of Christianity. So I think I may have misled you last week by saying that the Apostles' Creed can be serving as a litmus test for orthodoxy. I had several people who questioned in emails our sermon listening team, are these specific things about Pontius Pilate and Jesus descending into hell, are those necessary to believe in order to be saved? Well, this is not what we're talking about. 
What we're doing in, in worship is, is not studying for a test. We're not trying to memorize the facts that we need to know in order to be saved. The creed is a helpful overview of all that God has done for us. It's a, it's a fuller picture than the ABCs of what the Bible says about who God is and what he's up to, past, present, and future. Michael Bird says, a creed is not simply a checklist of things I'm supposed to believe, but a synopsis of the entire sweep of redemptive history that narrates a sequence, including God, creation, redemption, and consummation. These are the basic acts in the divine drama as scripture tells it. I love that. When we recite the Apostles' Creed, we're rehearsing the play. We're going over the, the entire sweeping scope and narrative of scripture from creation to new creation. And we need all of that. One last uh, disclaimer, <laughs> I wanna make sure that everyone heard me say last week that creeds, while very helpful and that they are a gift from the ancient church to our modern church today, but they are not authoritative. This is not scripture. I'm not gonna be preaching from the creed, I'm gonna be preaching from God's word, the holy scriptures from which the creed derives. I, I want us to understand that only the holy Bible the Old Testament and the New Testament of God's Word is our basis for faith and practice, just like our bylaws say here at Woodmont. But I believe the creed can help us understand the whole scope and sequence of Scripture. You know, I got a few emails from some really great Baptist folks who were raised maybe not to trust creeds, and they kindly and humbly let me know that they're going to struggle with this. But here's the thing I love about this church, and it shows this is a healthy thing about this church. Everyone at the end of the day on Tuesday <laughs> said, I'm willing to go with you. Maybe some of you didn't tell me and, and you're still upset about this, but the ones that I talked to all said, we're willing to go with you. We're gonna do this with you, we're trusting you, and we're willing to learn. A 92-year-old man who's grown up in a Baptist church told me, I'm willing to learn, this is weird for me, but I'm willing to learn. 92 years old, I love that about this church. My hope is that at the end of this series, we're not only gonna know the right beliefs of Christianity, but that we will do Christianity better, that we will have a robust Christian faith that compels us to go forth as God's hands and feet in a world that desperately needs them. So we're gonna look at the first line of the creed today. Last week, we, we talked about belief, I believe. What does it mean to believe in your heart? all these things about Christianity, and today we're going to talk about God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and our text may surprise you for today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. It's a text that you'll probably be familiar with. It's known as the Lord's Prayer. Some of you may not know this, but when, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're not just doing something out of ritual or reciting something out of rote. We're actually obeying the command of Jesus, who said, pray this way. So let's stand once again as I read our text for today out loud. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus said to his disciples, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You may know already that this text comes from what is known as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most powerful teaching sermon moments of all time. It's an incredibly powerful body of teaching that Jesus is giving to his disciples after he withdraws from these huge crowds that have been gathering following his ministry. So the Sermon on the Mount is instruction for those who have been called to follow him as disciples. It's not for the masses. It's a radical teaching that he's giving them. He's not abolishing the Old Testament. He says in chapter five, I'm not getting rid of the Old Testament, I'm fulfilling it. I'm the second chapter that comes after the Old Testament. I'm bringing all this to fruition and and completion. But he turns the law on its head. He says things like this in Matthew 5, 21. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say that anyone who's angry with his brother is liable to the judgment of hell. Or in verse 27, a few verses later, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Great, but I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's just radically blowing up all the old traditional ways of looking at the law. And eventually he begins to talk about prayer. Look at chapter six, verse five. When you pray, You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. You know, the the Gentiles, the the pagans of the first century would stand on the street and they would repeat these magical incantations in an effort to manipulate their gods to do something for them, right? Jesus says, don't be like the pagans. Or or they would go into the the pagan temples and and put on a performance of prayer and whip everybody into a frenzy. But the word for empty phrases in verse 7, I love this. In the Greek, the word is bata logeo. Bata logeo. It literally means to say bata over and over again. Bata, 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 bata. He's like, don't babble along in prayer. Don't just babble inane phrases. That kind of prayer was a a performance prayer. Bada, bada, bada. People would be like, oh, cool, that guy's really spiritual. (laughs) No. Jesus tells his disciples that prayer is supposed to be an intimately personal endeavor. Prayer should be sincere. It should come from our heart to God's heart. It should be like having a conversation with God. But here's the thing, when we converse with God, it's not like having a water cooler conversation with our buddy at work. When we converse with God, it's not even like the conversation that my wife and I had over dinner last night on a date. It's not even like that. 
When we talk with God, we're talking to God the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who made the Grand Canyon, the one who put the mountains in place, the one who put the stars in the heavens with his fingers. When we talk to God, we're talking to one who is not part of this created order because he alone is uncreated. Don't type uncreated into your word processor, it'll red squiggle that. God is not part of the chain of causality in our universe. Nothing caused him to be. He, in fact, is the first cause who caused everything else to happen. He's the one who set everything into place with his word. You know, I marvel at all the advancements that science and technology just exponentially, more rapidly, they make these amazing discoveries and advancements in medicine and in technology. It's incredible that, you know, when Tina Frost had her kidney transplant a few months ago, I didn't know this, but they, instead of taking out a, a bad kidney and putting in a new one, if they can, they just add a third one to her two weak kidneys. So she has three kidneys now all working together, this amazing trio of kidneys doing their thing. I was blown away. I said, that's incredible. I said, it's a new way of doing kidney transplants, and it's awesome. She has two kidneys that function at 15%. Now she's got one that functions at, at 100 and they're all working together. We were laughing a few weeks ago in the parenting class that David and Debbie and, and Martha and Bob were teaching because uh, every few years the American Pediatric Association comes out with, you, you have to put the baby on its stomach to sleep or it'll be really dangerous for the baby. And then a few years later they say, you have to put the baby on its back to sleep or it's really dangerous for the baby. And, and every few years they get these new insights and new understandings of medicine that help us keep our kids safe. And that's wonderful. I'm a, I'm a big pro-science fan. I hope you know that. I love science. I think it's fascinating. But with every new advancement, with every new scientific discovery, our understanding of the universe may shift and may change, but our God never shifts and never changes. He remains the same because he is not subject to any laws or any human understanding that we could impose on him. So when we pray to this God, who is beyond the, the, the realm of human capacity to fathom or grasp, when we pray to this God, we pray to the God who art in heaven, who's in heaven. God is on his heavenly throne. He rules. He sovereignly reigns from heaven over all that he has made. We believe in God the Father Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the God who commands angel armies with his word. It's good to remember that when we pray that God is God and we are not. I love the way Ecclesiastes, the, the book of wisdom in chapter five, verse two, I love the way it says it. I'm sure Jesus had this verse in mind when he taught his disciples to pray. It says this, be not rash with your mouth. Whew. It's a hard one for extroverts like me. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. God's in heaven, you are on the earth, therefore let your words be few. There's a great song by Matt Redman called Let My Words Be Few. There's a sense of awe that I think has been lost in our world of constant distraction. We have constant amusement. You know what amusement means? It means without thought. 
We don't have to think about stuff. We just look at our phones all the time. We, we're distracted constantly by media and social media, and we've forgotten, I think, what it means to wonder and to be in awe of something. When we think about God, we need to recover a profound sense of wonder. We need to be blown away by how truly awesome our God is. We need to have a proper perspective, too, of who God is in heaven and who we are on the earth. The first petition of the Lord's Prayer has to do with this, I think. The first request in the Lord's Prayer is that God's name would be hallowed. What does that mean? Well, hallow means holy. May your name be holy. Well, okay, what's that about? First, we need to understand that in Bible times that a person's name was deeply tied to who they were as a person. Their character traits, any authority that they had was conveyed by their name. Their name was integral to their identity, to who they were as a person. That's why the angel Gabriel announced to Mary that her son would be called Yeshua, Jesus in Greek, which means salvation, because he would save his people from their sins. So what's God's name? Well, in Exodus 3, when Moses asked him, who should I say sent me? What's your name? Who are you? God says, you tell them that my name is I am. Yahweh in Hebrew, Yahweh. It's only four letters in Hebrew. And you know, the Jewish people still refuse to, to pronounce those four letters. They call it the sacred tetragrammaton. That means the sacred four letters when they are together. It's the name of God. They don't dare pronounce it for fear of profaning it. So every time the tetragrammaton appears in scripture and they're reading out loud, they simply say Adonai, which means Lord. This is why in our Old Testament, when the word Lord appears, it's usually in all caps, all capital letters. It's actually Y-H-W-H in Hebrew, Yahweh, the holy, sacred name of God, the great I am. And what does holy mean? It means set apart. When we talk about God, the Bible says that God alone is holy, holy, holy. That's the Hebrew way of saying he's the holiestestest. He's holy times infinity is what that means. God is completely other than. He's 100% distinct in every way as the all-powerful, perfect, all-knowing, all-present, supreme being who was before all time, is now, and ever shall be. And we're not asking him to make his sacred name holy. It already is set apart as the holiestestest name. Hallowed be thy name is really a prayer that is something like, God, help us to remember who you are. God, do something amazing in our lives that would remind everyone who and what you are. Bring us, God, to a proper reverence and awe for you, O holy God. It's this God who created heaven and earth. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created 
the heavens and the earth. You know that word for created in Hebrew is bara, and it's only used of God. Only God creates. My daughter is very creative. She loves to make things in her art corner, but she's really just fashioning things out of what has already been created, right? Only God creates. Newton's law is that you can't create matter or destroy it, right? But God can. God's done it. He's the God who made everything that we see. And like I mentioned, he put the stars into place with his fingers. That should create a sense of wonder in us. Look at Psalm 8, verse 1. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We just sang it. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him, for me? I love Louis Giglio's talk on Indescribable, I think, on the stars. You know, he talks about the bigness of the stars. It's unreal. Our sun and our solar system is a million times, it's 960,000 times, almost a million times bigger than the earth, the whole earth, which is massive. But our sun is actually a really small star. You know, the biggest star that scientists have found so far is Canis Majoris. And Canis Majoris would hold 9 billion, 9.3 billion of our suns within it. It's just mind-blowing, the scale of some of these things in heaven, and it makes me feel really small, but in a good way. <laughs> the scale of this universe is just absolutely beyond us, but it's not beyond the God who put those giant stars into the heavens with just a word of his mouth. And here's the crazy thing. Jesus says that when we pray to this holy, sovereign, creator God who sits on the throne of heaven, we can call him Father. We approach him as Father. The word for Father in Aramaic is Abba. It's, it's not quite like Daddy. I've heard it preached as Daddy. This is a patristic society, right, where Father is a term of deep respect and fear even, but it's still one of intimacy and close relation. It's a term of affection as well as respect. It's kind of like saying dad with reverence. The disciples, when they heard Jesus say, when you pray, say our dad, they were like, what? You want us to refer to the Lord of hosts, to the one whose name is so holy that we, we dare not say it out loud. You want us to address him as dad? You are the son of God, we get that. You can do that, Jesus, but we're not Jesus. How could we possibly dare to approach God as dad? I know that the term father or dad or, or daddy might stir up some bad feelings and some pain for some of you. I know there's some of you in here who've lost your dad and that loss is a wound that still has not yet healed. I, I know that some of you cringe at calling God dad because your own earthly dad wreaked havoc on your own family. The truth is that all of our earthly fathers have fallen short, some in more serious ways than others. I don't want to min minimize that. But when we talk about God as dad, 
We're referring to the dad of Jesus. Let's not forget that. He's the one who showed up at Jesus' baptism and who smiled broadly and who announced to everyone who was within earshot, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He is a good, good father. He is perfect in every way. He is not like our earthly fathers for better or for worse when we talk about our fathers. So how is it that we are able to come and call this holy and awesome God dad? Well, it's through adoption. It's through a miraculous adoption. I love hearing stories of adoption. I I think about when Jeremy and Marissa got engaged right here on this very platform over a year ago and committed to marriage and adoption. And I think about the Colliers who, after thinking the Lord had given them Ellie, ended up becoming mom and dad to Ellie's son. You can't make this stuff up. It's God's miraculous work. Trey's sisters who, for years, fought legal battles. His parents were in Guatemala in the Supreme Court in order to bring them into their family, fully adopted as daughters. And the truth is that No matter what earthly family you come from, we relate to this because we're all in need of a supremely eternal family with a father that will never let us down. And the word tells us that that's exactly what we are, adopted into this family. Through Jesus Christ, we've been grafted into the family of God, Paul says. When we come alive through faith, In Jesus' ability to make us whole and to save us from our sins, we die to ourselves and we become a new creation from the inside out. And we become adopted into God's family. Romans 8.15, a verse that Trey shared with me when I first met him. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by which we cry, Abba. Dad, Father, we receive the Holy Spirit who's come to live inside of us to to make us whole, to make us right, to make us new. And that enables us to come to the high and holy God of the universe and say, Dad, I love you. I want to be in your presence, Dad. I just want you to be proud of me. I want to live to make you happy. I want to draw near to your heart, Dad. Galatians 4, 6 says, because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Dad, Father. And we see in this verse, I just want to quickly wrap this up, you see in this verse here one of the central doctrines of Christianity. God the Father has sent the Holy Spirit of his son into our hearts, enabling our heart to cry out, Dad, I love you. I'm talking about the Trinity, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I don't have time to go in depth into this doctrine of the Trinity, this great mystery that has defined the Christian faith for two millennia, but some Muslims and other staunch monotheists and other traditions have long accused Christians are violating the key commandment in the Bible. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. The Lord is one. They say that we're polytheists. But do we worship three gods? No. 
We worship one God so great that he possesses three eternal natures and relates to himself eternally in perfect harmony, three in one. He maintains fellowship and union with his own being in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They work together to accomplish the goal of the redemption of all things. Look at that verse again, Galatians 4, 6. Because you're sons and daughters, God's sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. One of my professors from seminary, Gerald Bray, says, our knowledge of God comes through the Holy Spirit of the Son who integrates into us his own relationship with the Father, something that would not be possible or meaningful unless each of them was fully divine. Three persons, three expressions, three agents, all fully God, one God who adopts us and loves us and calls us to be his own. The Christian faith has always been and must be robustly Trinitarian. There are so-called Christian churches in our community that deny the divinity of one or, or more persons of the Trinity. I would say they are way outside the bounds of Christian orthodoxy at that point. They have left the historic Christian faith by denying the divinity of Christ, right? Or by denying the divinity of the Holy Spirit. Three in one, that is an essential doctrine in the Christian faith. All right, it's an amazing thing to call God Father, isn't it? Amen. Maybe you've not been in awe of who God is ever, maybe not in a long time. Some of you I know have not drawn near to the Father in a long time. Some of you may not want to because of your own experience with your earthly father. Some of you may have once experienced the overwhelming love of God the Father many years ago, but you've run away like the prodigal son, and now your father stands at the road waiting for you to return with a robe and a ring for you. Maybe you long to return to your father's house and to sit at his table and to just be in his presence once again. I invite us all this morning to obey the words of Jesus, to call out to our Father who is in heaven, whose name is holy, and to say, Dad, I love you, and to mean it. Let's pray. Lord God, the knowledge that you invite us, that you command us, to call you dad is too overwhelming for our hearts to process. It's too great for our minds to wrap around. God, you are a good, good father. You are perfect in every way. Help us to remember that. Help us to draw near to your throne of grace, not with, with trembling, not with fear, or shame, or guilt, but with the assurance that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, by your grace, that you have cleansed us from the inside out and washed us whiter than snow and removed our sins as far as east is from the west. God, so that we can cry out, Abba, Dad, and approach you with full smiles, with full assurance, knowing that you extend your arms to us, ready to embrace us, 
with a robe to put around us and a ring to put on our finger. God, we praise you that you've adopted us. We feel like Annie and your daddy Warbucks, but times infinity, God. We've won the, the lottery times infinity because of what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. Help us to live into that reality that you are our Father who rules in heaven still, but we get to call you Dad. Help us to understand the intimate relationship that you've called us into as a good father and we as your obedient children. Lord God, we love you. We pray all these things in the high and holy name of the one who's made our adoption possible, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Maybe this morning, like I said, you, you haven't drawn near to the heart of the Father. He invites you this morning to come to him with open arms, not with shame. Nothing that you've done has separated you further than his grace can go, right? And, and it, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, he invites you to return to him, just as the prodigal son returned to his dad. Maybe some of you have never come to God the Father because of whatever baggage you're carrying with your own earthly father. I'm sorry, I don't want to minimize your pain. I encourage you to talk to somebody about that if you're struggling with your, your own father, uh, earthly father. But I pray that you could understand the good, good father that Yahweh is to us through Jesus Christ. We're going to have a time of prayer and invitation. I'm going to ask Sarah again and Trey if you'll come forward and, and Brad if you'll come forward. If you want to pray with one of them and pray for healing or ask them to pray for your family or, or something that's going on in your life, they would love to pray with you about that. If you want to come and just kneel at the altar, it'll be open as well. Pray for someone in your life who needs a prayer. We're called to be intercessors on behalf of other people as Christians. We believe in the power of prayer as well, that prayer is a powerful and effective thing, James 5, 16. Uh, whatever it is that you need to decide today, if you want to join Woodmont Baptist Church and talk to me about becoming a member, or if you want to be baptized, you've never been submerged uh, in, in immersion uh, by believer's baptism, if you want to do that, I'd love to talk with you about that today too. Whatever it is that you need to decide, we're going to stand and sing, I surrender all to Lord Jesus. Let's stand.